Full credit, repayment history, as well as people have no money down. That's right, no money down. They're located at 6385 North Federal Boulevard with a great auto inventory. Give them a call at 303-298-1155. That's Magic Financing. Features Mago the Magician. They're open Monday through Friday until 8 and Saturdays till 7. Check them out. That's Magic Financing. Call them today at 303-298-1155. Tell them you heard about it here at KUHSDenver.com. Also visit us at www. And yes, talk to magicfinancing.com. If you're looking for a new or used car, go talk to Maurizio. Maurizio Mago the Magician. He'll be there to help you and take care of you. Uh, I've known them for a very long time, and they are the sponsor of our show. Welcome, everybody. I'm Charlie Pacello. This is The Council. We are broadcasting live here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, all across this beautiful, cold city right now, we're getting ready for the holidays. Happy Hanukkah out there to everybody who celebrates Hanukkah. And Merry Christmas to you and happy holidays, everyone. Uh, we are coming into the end of 2020. Boy, I know for many of us, we are looking forward to the end of this year for sure. Uh, it has been a very challenging year, uh, a lot of upheavals, a lot of uh, pain as well and trying to get through our, these difficult challenges and crises, social crises, political crises, economic, and, and then of course the pandemic. And uh, we're here to try to bring some hope and healing to all of you, to give you uh, some, some tools today to be able to help you to get through this very difficult time. Even though there's a light at the end of the tunnel, which thank God there is, uh, we still need to kind of band together and to uh, be able to, you know, make sure that we're looking out for one another and taking care of each other and, and doing the best that we can. And also learning how to be able, when we're feeling closed in and isolated and needing to be able to um, take care and to self-regulate our emotions, especially when things are feeling a little bit unsafe and uncertain. Those anxieties and those fears and those uh, tend, to, tend to increase and elevate and, and overwhelm us sometimes. We can become in a, in a hyperarousal state or a hypoarousal state. And so learning what we can do during this time to get to the other side, to get to that, uh, that light at the end of the tunnel, which is out there, is, is what this show is all about today, folks. Uh, because there's a lot of things that are happening, and we need to be able to be giving people all over the world these kind of tools to help you and your families. And so I, want, I can't wait to introduce me with my guest today. I've, I've been taking a class with her. Uh, as many of you know, we, we, we talk a lot about trauma. We talk about the soul. We talk about healing in all different aspects. But I have never met someone who has had such a clear understanding of how trauma impacts the body and the things that we can do to help us get grounded and to feel safe in our skin, in our body, as the person who is, has graced us today to join us. And her name is Linda Tai. She is an adjunct faculty member in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and specializes in trauma-informed care and compassion fatigue resilience skills. A mental health clinician at ND Systems, she specializes in somatic therapies and trauma therapy. 
She assists internationally renowned psychiatrist and trauma expert, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, with his private small group psychotherapy workshops aimed at healing attachment trauma. In her work at Fairbanks Memorial Hospital, she is responsible for training clinicians in all departments, including psychology, nursing, and medicine. She has a Master of Social Work with an emphasis on the neurobiology of attachment and trauma. Her website is www.linda-tai.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-T-H-A-I.com. Linda, welcome to the show. It's my absolute pleasure to be here with you today, Charlie. (laughs) (sighs) I can't tell you how excited to have you on. You know, like I said, I I, I could probably gush for about five minutes over what I have learned from you and and your teaching and the the heart and generosity and and compassion that you feel for people and and the trauma that uh, people have been through and the skill sets that they need to build resiliency. I would love for you to be able to share just a little bit more about your background, um, where you grew up, and, and, and your, where did this passion for healing, the healing arts, come from? I tell you what, Charlie, I got into this healing work for me. Mm. Yeah, I was a red-hot mess, and I was in so much pain inside and yet hiding it from the world, and I needed to find a way to make sense of myself and my life and the world around me. And when I read uh, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, back in 2015, it was like someone gave me the blueprint to myself and my life. And I then became aware of the trauma that I didn't realise that I had lived through. Yeah. And in uh, 12-step meetings in AA, we say, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then maybe it's a duck. And now as a mental health clinician, I feel that 80, 85% of the work that I do with clients is helping them come out of denial in a gentle and compassionate way about the things that we have lived through that continue to impact us without us being aware of it. And speaking for myself personally, I was born in Vietnam post-war and my family fled Vietnam by boat. So we were one of the boat people. And we left in the middle of the night on a boat with 210 other people. And, yeah, there were pirates. There was, you know, they disabled all the boat motors except uh, and all the lights except for one. And so we were floating out at sea um, on the currents and on prets, mm-hmm. right? And there was a lot of tra- traumatisation as a result of that trip. And I was only two years old. And yet so much of our trauma is pre-memory and pre-verbal and is tucked away for good reason. We made it to a refugee camp in Malaysia. We lived there for six months. My little sister was born in the refugee camp. My dad had an injury while we were there, so he had a near-death experience. So grateful for Doctors Without Borders, Maison Sans Frontières, for without them, he wouldn't be alive today. And... After six months, we were able to be sponsored out to Australia under a pilot rural resettlement scheme. And so I spent the first couple of years of my life with my family in rural Australia. And that was a big culture shock. And after integrating into Australian culture there, we moved to the big city of Melbourne to be with more opportunity to be with community. Yeah. Yeah. To be with others who knew what it was like to have been through what we'd been through and yet we don't need to talk about it. Yeah. 
because trauma is unspeakable. And to just simply be with others who get it was just that starting point to healing. Mm -hmm. And we know that we can do great things when we move through life together. And yet it wasn't enough for my family because by the time I got to my teenage years, there was that confluence of life, you know, being raised by parents who were traumatised but not traumatising, mm -hmm. being raised with that confluence of new uh, life in a new country. And so I knew my parents loved me because they were never there. And by the time I got to my teenage years, that kind of all caught up. And so I was in juvenile justice court. I was having struggles with addiction, with truancy, with being one of those straight A students that all of a sudden was not able to turn up to school and really acting out and acting in. And my life was rather messy for the next 15 years after that. And I was living out the sequelae of trauma that I didn't realise that I'd experienced and also living out the, the, that my parents really did the best that they could with what they knew and yet there was so much that they didn't know and yet so much that they offered in terms of grit and resilience and how to survive. And so then we fast forward, right, a whole bunch of years and I read The Body Keeps the Score and I was like, wow. My life is beginning to make sense. And once I got that blueprint, I couldn't not run with it. Right. Yeah. Right. I couldn't not run with it. So I ran with it. <laughs> I ran with it. Yeah. Well, yes. I, I felt the same way with when I read Dr. Bessel Vanderkoek's yeah. book. It was like, oh, my gosh, a light went on. And I understood, mm -hmm. like, oh, my, that's what's been going on inside of me that I couldn't quite connect with because of the, the traumas that I had experienced in my life. And, uh, and thank you for sharing so much of your story with us, you know, because... So many, there's a lot of a lot of veterans and a lot of Vietnam veterans and people who watch this uh, show that, that are afflicted by war, but they don't know necessarily the other side and the impact that that had on people like your families that had to leave, you know, because they, we wanted to get out of that. We didn't, want to, we didn't want to deal with it. We wanted to leave and we were done. But there was a consequence to people like you and your families and all those people. And, you know, it's... If we understood the impact of war and how it how it affects people, the 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 impact that it has on people down the down the generations, we would find more ways to for to find peace. I think, mm -hmm. you know, because it's just it's such a calamity on so many levels. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's also the other side of that conversation as well, Charlie, where. You know, as new immigrants to a new land, we don't want to burden these, you know, the this the people who've given us the opportunity of a new life mm -hmm. with our own stuff and our own suffering. Mm -hmm. That's true. Right? That's true. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. don't. <laughs> we don't want to do that. We want to be able to pick yeah. ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to get yeah. ourselves moving. We don't want to burden them with this stuff. We want to, mm -hmm. and yet our nervous system. It changes, right? Doesn't it? It, it alters, and it, it all of a sudden, when you get older, like what you were just describing, a similar thing had happened to me. Even though I got into the military, once I once I was working on the on the program that I was working on, all of a sudden, all these things that I hadn't, I I, I was I was a top of the line officer, and then all of a sudden, I was falling into alcoholism and and drug abuse and these things, and there was something else that was going on. And it wasn't until 
I saw and read about what Dr. Vessel Vandercook was talking about that all of a sudden, oh, now I understand. Now it makes sense. Yes. Yes. It's the, you know, for me, it was the grateful refugee. Mm -hmm. For you, it's the tough stoic soldier. <laughs> and yet <laughs> to... Yeah. And so I think that, you know, we, and we talk about it in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember being at a AA conference mm. where it was a small group workshop and we're sitting there and we're each telling our stories in some detail. Mm. And there was a Vietnam veteran there telling his story. And I, after he told his story, I told my story. Mm. And there was just such a spaciousness of humility and sharing from our own experience and strength and hope that allowed us to truly see and be with each other purely as humans who have lived through the aftermath of what trauma does to our bodies and to our nervous systems and to our psyches. And yet that profoundness of here we are today with each other and able to just share our stories without feeling any sort of defensiveness or obligation or guilt, or survivor guilt, or burden of shame around our own actions and contributions. Well, yeah. shame is such a big part of it too, because it's uh, you feel like you could have done something differently or should have done something differently. And like you said, trauma is pre-verbal. We don't have the language. It bypasses our language centers so that we're not able to articulate. I mean, it's we're... We're like frozen in those moments where it actually happens and we can't, we don't have the agency to move forward and to do something about it. And, you know, in one of your classes, which every class that you taught, that I was just in was fantastic. Uh, but you said that traumas are the things, and I love this quote, it's, it's, it's so brilliant, you are the things that didn't happen that should have happened as well as the things that happened that shouldn't have happened. Yes. And when I heard you say that, I thought, wow, that it is so on point. Mm -hmm. That it's the things that didn't happen that should have happened also. Yeah. So could you explain in greater detail For and just sure. to help us to understand uh, and expand our context and understanding of, of what trauma is? Yes, and I'll weave this into the body and the nervous system. Okay. So oftentimes we think of trauma as the things that happened that shouldn't have happened, right? War, rape, um, you know, uh, traumatic experiences and events that we're trying to erase our memory and our body memory of. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, what happens to our nervous system is we get stuck in the survival responses of fight, flight, freeze, or dissociate, collapse, and feign death. And so we get stuck in those trauma responses and or we get stuck in the responses that we wish we could have taken back then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we end up fighting people that, that really aren't the, the cause or the source of our anger, for example. And we're running away from situations or relationships or jobs when it just becomes too much for our system to cope with. Yeah. <laughs> And yet the, the other aspect of trauma is that it's the things that didn't happen that should have happened, right? It's the failure of another to protect. It's the failure of the authority figures in our lives, whether they're parents or higher up uh, individuals in the military, 
right? To actually stand up and, and stand in and be able to protect us. Yeah. And beyond that, it's also the, the imprint that doesn't get made on our nervous system that says, hey, I can trust the people around me who are above me, who have more responsibility than, than me over my life, to be able to be there for me in the ways in which I need before I even need it. Because they have access to information and to the world that I don't have access to. And so that lands as a sense of safeness on the body. And then, then if we continue that a little bit further, the things that didn't happen that should have happened, it's the failure of the imprinting of that someone else cares about me and takes delight in me. Yeah. Yeah. And then we move through the world not knowing what it's like when someone says, Charlie! And my body doesn't light up when I hear someone say my, my name. I go into cringe and what do you want from me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you almost go into this place where you're like, what did I do wrong? What is, what, what, why is my, something my name? So instead of being receptive and open to it and like, oh, they said, she said my name or he said my name or whatever it is. It's like, oh, what did I do? I did something wrong, something. You go into a default mechanism or an adaptation that your nervous system has adapted to because of those moments, correct? It's correct. Yeah. Correct. And so it's this failure to have the imprinting of positivity and having someone take delight in you. And so when someone doesn't get that, they move through the world not getting what they didn't get. It's a blank. It's an imprint that didn't get formed. Yeah. And by being able to notice and name that, we're then able to go, oh. And that then potentially opens a space for grief for deep longing and for a recognition of ourselves as little people which can be so hard for so many of us so yeah. hard really hard for many of us to be able to even uh, uh hear that receive that take nourishment from it um uh, to be able to um <laughs> believe it you know and then that goes into that shame that so many people have and that sense of unworthiness and, and not being good enough and and there was something wrong with me something unlovable all those things are connected to that to that what did we the things that didn't happen that should have happened and those are those those underlying and so once someone says something like you know charlie or linda you just <laughs> you know what happened so it, it, i think it's so important for people to get that that's your system you know, and if you could expand on this just a little bit more about how you came into the somatic understanding of, of, of how trauma affects the bodies, because the nervous system, the brain changed and altered in order to help you to survive. Yes. And it was great in that moment, yes. but it leaves us with dysfunctional patterns. Could you explain just a little bit more about um, what those imprints, what, what our nervous system, how our nervous system was changed. Yes, yes, yes. So what happens is when we go through a life-threatening situation, 
there's a bunch of neurochemicals that, that go off, and I won't get into the scientific details of it, but what these neurochemicals do is that they imprint your nervous system and your brain with these cues, um, the sounds, the sights, the smells, um, the proximity of other people, and they imprint this on the nervous system in such a way that it becomes part of your Im implicit memory. You know, we're unable to access it directly, and yet we know that there's things that are dangerous. Yeah, And then we become hypersensitive to cues of danger and to cues of unsafety. And yet because it's not within our realm of explicit awareness, what happens is we move through the world and we notice these cues of unsafety or cues of danger and our nervous system automatically and instinctually responds in service of survival. An example of that may be I might be sitting in someone's office and if that person happens to stand between me and the one entrance and exit to that office, my heart rate goes up. And my body starts to stiffen and I'm usually unaware that I'm doing that. But I'm already starting to edge towards that red line of cue of unsafety, potentially tripping into cue of anger or cue of danger or cue of rage or cue of get me out of here. Yeah. And then I spend the rest of that session with my, with my provider not actually hearing anything that they're saying because until they move away from being in between me and the, the one entrance and exit, my danger signals don't come down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And if they happen to stand in that position for long enough before they go and take their seat, my body stays in that orange alert phase. Yeah, And so for many of us, in service of survival, our nervous system stays in orange alert. Yeah, and we don't realise it. It becomes our normal. And that becomes our new normal. That's not even... Yeah. And so we don't even recognise that we're in that. And yeah. we have triggers that are happening or cues of danger that you're talking about yeah. that can, yes. it can go all the way back, <clears throat> excuse me, to our childhood, you know, um, yes. to the adverse childhood experiences, those things that happen, parents doing the best that they can to raise mm -hmm. their kids, but, you know... In, trying circumstances and refugee camps and war-related injuries, all those things. And so the children out, and all of a sudden now, they're having a hard time having healthy relationships. They're having yes. a hard time being able to feel safe in their own bodies. They're having a hard time trying to deal with their, they don't, they can't self-regulate themselves. Mm -hmm. And is this yes. all connected to what you're talking about? The yes, the absolutely. And if I could add some paradox into this for you and your listeners, Charlie, is that these, you know, the, the, the hormones and chemicals of orange alert mm -hmm. is also adrenaline and cortisol and endogenous cannabinoids. And so this can actually become addictive over time. Wow. Yeah. And right. so, it, but, and it gives us this sense of feeling alive. And so it can be really confusing to be someone who gravitates towards orange alert situations because it helps us to feel alive and we can't help it. And then to be someone in the life of someone whose nervous system struggles to, to self-regulate and at the same time, that person can't help it. They move towards those cues of safety or those cues of, of danger because your training has been, I've got to move towards that. 
I can't shy away from that, right? We we, we then reenact our trauma in ways that can be so confusing for ourselves and confusing for the people around us. And so just the capacity to notice a name like, oh, right, it's it's the moth to the flame. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And I could see that too, you know, in certain things where even in my experience with with, with trauma um, and when I was in in the, the deep episodes of my crisis, I would seek out dangerous situations. I would mm-hmm. seek out, and I would know, my gosh, what am I doing? I mean, I could rationalize for myself, but there was something that was pulling me towards it, and, and it was that, which you just highlighted, and it just made sense to me, like a life, the, the addictive quality of it, that the only time that I could actually feel alive was mm-hmm. when I was moving into those very, you know, dangerous areas, dangerous activities, uh, and I couldn't feel normal just sitting down and, and being at, at rest. I had to be doing something. So my pleasure receptors got, got switched somehow. And there's that element of seeking resolution, mm. right? So to actually save people, to actually protect people, Yeah, and so this is why for so many uh, veterans, you end up becoming first responders Mm -hmm. so that you can actually save people and rescue people and make a difference to compensate for the actions that you weren't able to take back then as a way of generating some sort of resolution for for your psyche and for your nervous system. And yet the nervous system doesn't actually get to resolve because we need to allow that space of letting it settle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hard. <laughs> right. Uh, and <laughs> we do, you know. And, and, and I thought when, um, when I was, uh, when I was uh, studying with you and in the way you were able to describe, uh, and I've, I've, I've focused on trauma here, from multiple angles, uh, you know, from from the soul, from the body, the mind. I practiced yoga for many, many years, but I didn't think it was as clearly elucidated for me until this this past class that I took with you about the different stages of going up from the fight, flight, res- fight, flight, freeze, and it, it's is this the polyvagal theory? Um, could you briefly explain that for our audience? Because I think it's so important and it was so clear. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it can really help people to recognize, oh, my gosh. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to go into, a, a, you know, a flight response here. I can feel it. Could you just share just a little bit on, on that for us here before we get into some of these other exercises that I want to do? Yes, yes, yes. So um, just to create some clarity, this is actually from the world of sensory motor psychotherapy. And I believe that somatic experiencing and some of the other somatic-based trauma treatment modalities have done a lot of work in helping folks to distinguish when they're having a trauma response. Mm. And so the human nervous system goes through uh, a set sequence of responses when the nervous system notices cues of unsafety and then cues of danger. And when we can tap into the the primacy of the human mammalian response, our first go-to response typically as infants, toddlers or children is the attachment cry. Mm -hmm. I I experience a fright and I cry out for help. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And that 
gets resolved when someone responds to our cry of help and helps us. And yet our nervous system in service of survival, if it knows that crying out for help is actually going to make it worse or if it's not going to be helpful in this situation, we stifle that attachment cry. And this can then become part of how we survive. And so for some of us as adults, we don't, we don't cry out for help. Right? We've learned that it's not okay to cry out for help and so we stuff that down. And then for some of us that manifests as the flip side, which is crying out for help you know, the 50 text messages to eight different social media groups, <laughs> right? And yet it doesn't actually land on our nervous systems that someone is actually there, that people are actually there, yeah? And then, um, so the next step beyond that is typically when we are experiencing a survival response. So we are now fully in the sympathetic branch of the nervous system. This is that fight, flight, freeze. But the first go-to is the flight response. Yeah, get me out of here. Yeah, let me disappear. Let me find the exit. Let me run for my life. And this is where those neurochemicals of adrenaline, cortisol, and endogenous cannabinoids come in so handy because if I'm going to hurt myself in the process of running away with all this excess energy I now have, I don't want to feel that pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. And there's typically feelings of panic that are associated with that flight response and if that can't be resolved or if our nervous system knows oh running away isn't going to make this any better mm -hmm. we either stay unable to exert agency in terms of getting ourselves out of a dangerous situation which can happen with a lot of my uh, domestic violence survivors actually yeah. like they want to leave but they can't and i get that and it's curious for me, the family of origin that you were raised within that has perhaps given you um, cues around it's not okay to get up and leave, yeah, at the dinner table, right? That becomes part of what we get habituated to. So when that danger situation happens, we're stuck, not able to run away. And yet for others, the flip side happens. Every time there's a whiff of the sniff of abandonment or danger or um, things not going how we'd like it to go, I, I, I take a geographical cure. I change out partners. I change out jobs. <laughs> so we have a hyperactive flight response, hypersensitive flight response. Right. Yep. Right. And so, you know, the feelings of rising um, panic that come with that. You can be so unbearable and yet not resolved. We go into the flight, res sorry, the fight response, right? The rage that says, I will take you down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when, when we're in this survival response, like we behave in ways that are totally irrational. <laughs> we do. In, uh, yes. We do. When you look at it, we do. We, we yeah. do. Yeah. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we call it, oh, what's that phrase? I love it. It's pole vaulting over a mouse turd. <laughs> <Right? That's good. laughs> yeah. And so for some of us, we're either stuck in taking everyone down and everything we hear is perceived as an attack. Mm -hmm. yeah, or we inhibit that rage and we stifle the, the anger and the rage and, and because we know it's not going to serve us. Mm -hmm. And then when that doesn't happen, we get stuck in freeze, right? There's a terror of being stuck. And really, this is trauma. Right? Yeah. I am stuck and I can't take effective action. Yes. Yes. And no matter what I do, say, be, believe, try, mm -hmm. I, it's futile. Yeah. 
And so we can only hold that hyper-aroused state of terror for so long before we then collapse into this state of submissiveness, mm -hmm. compliance, defeat, leaving my body. Um, this will be over soon, mm -hmm. whether it's imminent death or um, whatever that overwhelming situation is. And maybe perhaps if I survive another day, I won't remember any of this. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, and it, it, when you had elucidated that and pointed that out. It was so clear because it, it just, I mean, just as you're describing it, of course, I'm getting, you know, I, thoughts and feelings and remembering. And, and I've had other people say to me, you know, why, why isn't this stuff more well known? Why, are, why is this just coming out now? You know, because one of the classes that I teach, Linda, is, is to parents that are going through divorce to help set up parenting plans for their children. And one of the things we talk about, of course, is, you know, trying to extract and pull away from and the trauma that some of the domestic violence uh, partners, people experience and um, that freeze moment that and they didn't understand what was going on in the brain. And all of a sudden people are like, you know, now that I'm seeing this, why didn't we know about this before? Why didn't we? Why wasn't this made aware of us before? And, and I think that a lot of times that uh, a lot of people feel that way is like, you know, where was this information? And I try to remind them that this wasn't around until, re until very recently. I mean, only about, you know, the last 20 or 40 years, I think this was starting to come into, into modern dialogue and conversation. Yes. Yes, and then people like your good self, Charlie, do the work of public awareness and public advocacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wanted you know, and so, much, <laughs> <laughs> and so much of the work that we do becomes so siloed. Yes. And so part of the work that I like to do is to make this information available to people at low cost. Mm -hmm. And if we pause for long enough to recognise the barriers to education and information in, in this country, it's the fact that we become so specialised, we become so full of jargon as well because of our professional training that the average person isn't able to track and understand and keep up and some of our services become uh, hard for people to access yeah because of the way insurance companies are set up in this country because of the ways in which there are barriers to access to education and awareness Absolutely. And they, uh, you know, the, the people that it was uh, just I had recently you spoke about this, this very thing. Uh, this information needs to get out to the people. This needs to get out to the people who are, or are struggling, who can't afford it, who need those help, who need those resources to say, oh, my gosh, this is what is going on with me. Because if we're going to have those systemic changes within the culture and society, we got to get to the root causes of it, which is, you know, really, in my eyes, is the families, is, the, is, the, is getting back into understanding what trauma is doing in my body so that I can do something about it so that I don't affect and impact or imprint negatively the people around me. And so it's learning what that optimal energy is and learning to be in that window. I mean, you call that a window of arousal and the window of tolerance. And learning that we have, there's an optimal energy that we need, that we can be in, that we can flourish in, where we're on top, where we're able to engage, we're energized. And then there's a part of where it's too little energy. 
Could you explain to us what that is? What is this window of arousal and tolerance and the optimal energy zone that we're, we're, we're seeking? Yes. So if we use the Goldilocks metaphor, yeah, of the porridge being too hot or too cold or just right, we can do that to tune within and notice our own nervous system and where our energy levels are at. So when, you know, when the porridge is too cold, yeah, we're in that state of hypoarousal. I've got no energy. I feel disconnected from my body. I feel numb. I'm hyposensitive, meaning that um, things happen and I'm underreacting to everything. Yeah. There's that sense of despair, perhaps helplessness, hopelessness, futility, defeat. It's all too much, this information about the pandemic. Do I go to work? Do I not? Do I send my kids? I'll just wait for someone to tell me what to do because I am in this state of, of defeat, yeah? When the porridge is too hot, yeah, that's that hyperarousal, I'm in that state of manic, frantic panic. I'm full of these neurochemicals and hormones that says action in service of survival for protection. So let's cool down the porridge. Let's make it, you know, let's try and figure this out now. And so I go into hypervigilance, uh, hyperarousal. So my heart rate is up. Perhaps my jaw is clenched. Perhaps my, you know, my fists are clenched. I am sitting on the edge of my seat. I want to take action now. I am going to become an epidemiologist overnight and read everything possible in regards to the pandemic because right. I'm, I need to know now. Right. Yeah? Yes. And, I, and I'm going to take down everyone who disagrees with me. Yeah. I'm going to, yeah. And so I'm in that, that fight, flight, find, um, yeah. And I'm full of that energy in service of survival. And my, I'm not able to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so my bandwidth becomes narrow. The train needs to stay on the train tracks. And so that rigid thinking comes in or that black and white thinking. And when we're in the, the higher edges of that zone, there's intrusive thoughts, there's re-experiencing or reenacting. And when I'm a hammer, everything's a nail. And when I'm a nail, everyone's a hammer. And so there's this schema of the world that I'm then uh, reliving, yeah. And then in the middle of the window, that's the Goldilocks, the porridge is just right. I love the metaphor, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's where we're deeply connected to the... Uh, to the newest part of the nervous system, which is known as the ventral vagus. You may have also heard it known as the smart vagus. And this is where we're able to access our capacity to feel safe and social and engaged. I'm able to mobilise into action with a felt sense of safety and a sense of other people are on my team and we're in this together. And I'm able to see all the things that we have in common and the common goals and agendas. I'm able to take into account my feelings and my thoughts without it overwhelming me. And I can take into account other people's feelings and thoughts without it overwhelming me either. Yeah, And I'm able to communicate into that spaciousness that exists between us in a way that's not divisive, in a way that facilitates this felt sense of togetherness. And, that, and I think that's, uh, that sense of togetherness is so... 
we, we crave it. We, we, we long for it. We yearn for it. And uh, when we don't feel safe with the people around us, or we don't feel safe in the... It, we, uh, we are in that hyper-arousal or that hypo-arousal state. We're either way over the top, we're going we're gonna to protect and we're going to bring it down, or we're just, you know, just tell me what to do kind of a thing. The helplessness, the hopelessness, the despair. And I know for me that it was hard for me to feel safe in my own body. And it wasn't until you articulated it in your class so brilliantly that I was able to finally really identify it uh, with, you know, because I had been constantly, and sometimes I find myself just because of the, the, my, my background, uh, that I'm constantly on edge, that I'm constantly racing and needing to move, and, and, and my nervous system wouldn't calm down. I do yoga, and I've been doing yoga for many, many years, and that would give me some relief, over, but I would still go back into that state. And it's, it took me a long time, a long time to get to that place of being Wow, I can just I can just be here. <laughs> I don't have to do anything. I can just I can just relax. I can. Everything's okay. Um, you know, it's. Uh, well, is there a distinction? And I think this is what it was that really really landed for me. That there's an important distinction between safety and safeness. Mm -hmm. And what is that difference? And what does it mean? What is safeness? Yes. So safety is when my physical environment around me is safe. When my physical environment around me has no cues of danger or no cues of unsafety. And yet safeness is when I let that land on my nervous system. Yeah. Yes. You know, I've worked with veterans who clear their homes, yeah, and then clear their home again, and then clear the outside of their home, and then the inside of their home, and then the inside of their bedroom. And they go and do it over and over again because they're checking for safeness. Oh, sorry, they're checking for safety in their internal, external environment. But that pause where we can let that safeness land, yeah, and that can be extraordinarily hard when you have experienced environmental threats that come from the outside, right? The, 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 the IED explosions or the bomb explosions or the earthquake or the, you know, the thing that happens out of the blue. Yeah. And so we have to take into account then the fact that I am so grateful for your nervous system's ability to have survived in that hypervigilant state for so long because it's what caused you to survive. That you were able to wake up in the middle of the night out of your sleep and be ready for action is what you needed to do in order to make it through what you've made it through. Yeah, and it's, and it's over now. I love it. And it's just the idea. It's almost a sense of gratitude. It's not resisting you what happened. It's being, it's accepting it as, as a necessary part to help you to get you through that time. Yes. Yes. And that's where having a dog, having a pet is so important. I know for me, I sleep so much better at night when my partner is at home and not on the road. Yeah. 
And when he's at home and, uh, sorry, not at home and on the road, I make sure my dog is sleeping in the same bed with me because her nervous system helps my nervous system to co-regulate. Yes. And we need that from each other. And it can be so hard when we have experienced collective trauma mm -hmm. that we have survived because we got through it with other people to then be shuttled off and then try and make it on our own. Mm -hmm. Like that's taking away uh, you know, that basic first response of our nervous system's cue for safety is other people, other people's nervous systems, other people who get what it's like, other people who've been there and we don't even actually need to talk about it. There's a knowingness that resonates in the space between us that allows my nervous system to tap into safeness through that co-regulation. And it's so hard for people who have uh, been traumatized uh, to, to self-regulate, uh, to self-regulate into a, a state of calmness and, and relaxation and completion, that we can go ahead and do that. And so very often, uh, you know, with the the stresses that we have, like the holiday stress that's coming up and the anxieties and some of those things, um, we don't know how to calm ourselves down. And yeah. we need some tools to help us to restore ourselves so that our mm -hmm. nervous system doesn't go, doesn't go into that fight or flight response mode. Yes. Yes. Linda, we're... Uh, we're hurting as a, as a country right now with the pandemic. I mean, the year has compounded and, and, uh, and we've, with challenges and, and social upheavals, political, economic, and our, collectively, our nervous system right now is highly stressed. What are some simple strategies that we can do in this last 10 to 12 minutes here I want uh, that we can do, that people can do at home uh, yes. to calm themselves down and, and not let what's going on around them uh, mm -hmm. to trigger their stress or survival response. How can we help them and what can they do? Yes. So I'll share with you some techniques to, to actually complete the stress response cycle. Yeah. Because so many of us, we have been damaged by the words, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> and if you... Yeah. That's true. Like, calm right, down. Because, How can I calm down? <laughs> yeah. And so this is a way of allowing what's here to be here and allowing it to gently move through. Mm -hmm. So we will make some sounds. So an animal that's in danger becomes very, very still and quiet. And by making gentle sounds, what we can do is we can give our bodies a cue that we're actually in a space of safety and that that safeness can land on the nervous system. And so we'll start, start down here and we'll work our way up and you can opt in or opt out as it feels appropriate for you. I'll, I'll definitely opt in here. So I'll okay. <laughs> okay. So the first one is just a gentle sigh. Yeah. So it's a breath in. Ah. 
perhaps the gentle voo sound a la Peter Levine. And then let's just pause there and allow this to land. Any breath where the exhale is longer than the inhale ignites that ventral vagus. If you would like to up level, we can let the exhale be a moan of relief. Yeah. And this is where, you know, you can let the body join in if it would like to. Okay. okay. So breath in. Okay. I've got to make sure I have enough room and I don't knock anything down here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. okay. In. Allow, allow your irritations and frustrations to be in this moment. And then exhale. Oh. 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 Take a pause and let that land on the nervous system. Typically with the moan of relief, towards the very end, the diaphragm actually squeezes that little bit more. Uh, and what happens is any sort of frozenness that's in the nervous system that's stuck in the diaphragm gets kind of like tensioned out through the last of that squeeze. And then with the next breath, there's more spaciousness in the diaphragm. Oh. Yeah. I can feel it. Yeah. No, I can feel the difference right away. It's amazing. It's yes. so simple and it's so amazing. It's so effective. Yes. Incredible. Yes. yes. And then if you like... We can up-level it a little bit more because for some of us, that porridge is way too hot mm -hmm. and we let it need to let it be okay that we have frustration about the porridge being too hot and I want the porridge now. Exactly. <laughs> and so, yes. And so this is allowing for the, the fist to clench, the shoulders to come up, the face to make that cabbage patch kid face, the jaw to clench, the nostrils to flare. And then the first baby step rung of this is to keep the lips closed and to make a sound of frustration. Yeah. So as you breathe in, shoulders up, clench the fists, cabbage patch, kid, clench the jaw, flare the nostrils, mouth closed. <gasps> And then release. Breath in. Gentle sigh or big sigh. Exhale. <sighs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and maybe laughter comes up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely coming up for me right now. <laughs> right. Yes, and that laughter, the silliness, it's an emergent quality. Yeah of you know the porridge being just right yes it's yeah. so noticeable i mean it, it seems so simple and it is but it has such an like amazing of transformation i mean in, in, immediately i yes. feel better yes. less t tension less i mean it's it's amazing <laughs> 
So amazing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just. It's okay. You know, we live in this society of be calm, be cool, be collected, be a big boy or a big girl or pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't let anyone know that that this is affecting you or bothering you or what happens is we stuff it in and stuff it down. And um, you might remember from the class, Charlie, where I shared a story about one of my exes, how we started to make headway in our arguments when we let ourselves have permission for two minutes at the start of each argument. And we can do this together if you like. Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. changes how you get into an argument. I mean, you start that way out before you're like, and you've already, <laughs> the silliness, I mean, it's, but it's a release of that energy and those emotions that need to come out for us to be able to see each other and actually talk to one another. Yes, because it's never actually about you didn't take the trash out or the Christmas tree lights aren't running right. Can you please help me fix it? Mm -hmm. right? It's actually a build-up of stress and tension from other areas of our days or our lives, and we tend to take it out on the people closest to us because they're safe mm -hmm. to take it out on, and yet it can start to create this uh, not-so-healthy pattern. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we do. You know, you're right, Linda. We take it out on the people closest to us. I mean, and... And, and, and I know I, I've certainly done it in, in relationships as well, mm -hmm. where you just uh, you take it out on that person, and it's not they didn't do anything wrong, but and and a lot of us do that. So yeah. And the person closest to us is ourselves. Yeah. So yeah. we end up beating ourselves up, or slamming down those tequila shots, or you know. Yeah. Get, that becomes our comfort, you know, That's, <laughs> the slamming on those tequila shots. It's to make us, we all want to feel better, and we use it that way as a way to feel better. Yeah. When simple things like this can really, uh, and you just automatically, your nervous system, you feel it. It's incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you have one where that I, I was working with another about being able to lift their arms, to be able to, you know, th this. If you could show us, that would be great for as sure. well. Because I think people, sure. when they're sitting down, <clears throat> when they're at their computers, the TV, or, or isolated in their homes, ways that they can do things to help get yes. their brains together. Yes. So what can happen with the trauma response is we hunker down. Right? So I'm getting ready to fight. I'm getting ready to, to run away. I'm getting ready to, to be small. Yeah. And so what happens is we contract and we close in. So be, to be able to reach out and up. I have to do it this way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to block you. I'm going to have to go over here. So, yep. That's right. 
<laughs> reach out and up and then to reach down. To reach out, arms out to a T and then reach down. This time reach arms out to a T and let your right arm continue straight up. And then exhale, right arm down, both arms down. Inhale, arms out to a T, left arm continues straighter. Exhale, left arm down, both arms down. Inhale, both arms up to a T and then all the way up. And then exhale, arms down. And then the upper level from that is to stand up and lift your heels up because that vestibular system activation gets the left side and the right side of the brain talking to each other. We're then able to access both sides of ourselves and not become so one-sided. <laughs> <laughs> Which we could easily do. <laughs> yes. Easily become one-sided. I, I just, uh, this is so fabulous, so fabulous. Um, can Is there anything, you know, I can't believe how fast these shows go we're here that like towards the end i would love for you to be able to in these last couple minutes just whatever it is that you want to share with our audience we're uh, a worldwide audience anything that you want to be able to impart to them to um, help them with their with their their uh sure Yes. Um, you know, we hear the messages all the time of be kind with yourself, be gentle with yourself, extend that kindness to others. And yet the message I actually would like to offer is one that actually takes into account the fact that we are separate from each other at the moment and to actually be able to pause and notice and name homesickness and to notice the name traumatic homesickness. That's where my homesickness causes me to spiral into a trauma response where I'm then scrambling, I'm frantic, I'm uh, wanting more of others and not able to get them. And this sense of internal scurrying and jaggedness can be so reminiscent for those of us that have abandonment wounds or abandonment trauma. And the gift of being able to notice and name that, to name the homesickness, to name the traumatic homesickness, allows me to go, and to come back to myself and to take care of myself in the ways that I need and in the small ways that I can, which then allows me to reach out towards others in ways that are more adaptive and resourceful and can build our capacity for shared resilience during these tough times so that we can look back on this with a sense of nostalgia. And nostalgia is a shared experience of tough times together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sure is. You know, when you look at it, uh, when you think back and and people have been in the Great Depression or other World War II, difficult trying times, you look back on it and you say, we got through that. You know, we did it together. And that sense of, and and Linda, this has been such an honor to have you on the show today. Um, But before we close out the show, I want to do a quick shout out to KUHS, KUHSDenver.com. We are broadcasting live here 
in the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado. It's a snowy, cold day today, but uh, we're getting into the holiday spirit out here and uh, broadcasting here in Denver, all across the nation and all around the world. The council is being listened to by so many of you from so many different countries. It is an honor and a privilege to be your host. And thank you for tuning in every week or every Friday to the show when we're on uh, to, to listen to us and uh, to, to support us and to continue to grow the, the, the audience. Thank you so much. Uh, it just uh, very humbled by all of, your, uh, all of you being here and, and tuning in and listening every week. So thank you so much. And thank you, Henry, and everybody here uh, that's making all the magic happen in the back. So tune in to KUHS, Denver, the stream. We're the best. We're the best. We're one of the best. <laughs> um, Linda... I, I just love the work that you do, and uh, if uh, I just want to, I want to spread your message to so many people because it's it's just so important in today's world. And if you could give one bit of advice, Linda, I always ask my guests this before we close out the show. If you could give one bit of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? The secret of life is that it's a lifelong thing. So be kind to yourself and gentle to yourself as you move through that journey. So beautiful. That is, uh, you have honored me so much. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you, much, Tom. Linda. And uh, folks, if you would like to learn more about Linda's work, please go to her website at www.lindatom.com dash tie.com that's linda dash tie.com i can't encourage you more to take her class uh, it will change your life all right folks thank you so much for tuning into the council today um merry christmas happy hanukkah happy holidays to everyone the council is adjourned may you all be well may you all be free of pain and suffering may you all be whole god bless everyone we'll see you next year